Have you ever thought about the evolution of communication? Like you think way back to like caveman days, like the cavemen, like all they had was grunts. And somehow they put some of those together, they made words, right? They got words. And then we think, you know, somewhere along the way, somebody learned, hey, I can draw pictures and tell a story with pictures. And so we look in the caves and you can see like the drawings of how they used to communicate. Uh, somewhere we, we, we came up with hieroglyphics and they made the Rosetta Stone and uh, all that great way that we learn how to communicate. And then you fast forward and then, you know, the printing press was like this amazing achievement, the printing press. Um, after uh, the printing press, you know, telephones, that was pretty remarkable to have a telephone that you could communicate with somebody. And then came the internet and, you know, text messages now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the latest breakthrough in communication. Uh, this breakthrough is called memes, right? We communicate through memes. And uh, in fact, I was uh, looking this week at some memes that I thought was great. I thought, uh, I saw these memes about expectation versus reality. How we have an expectation of how something's going to work. In reality, it looks very different. So, for example, in marriage, like women, they have this expectation that marriage is going to be Cinderella. He's going to put the shoes on my feet. And reality of, of marriage is sometimes it's not all as is made out to be, you know. Or, or for this, as men, we get married and we think, oh, we're going to get married. It's going to be full of intimacy and romance. And then we go home and she puts a face mask on and we're like, what is... What is this, right? Expectation versus reality. It goes, it goes more than marriage. Expectation versus reality. This goes into uh, parenting and work and exercise, right? Where we have these expectations of the way things are going to work out, but in reality, they kind of look a little bit different. <laughs> yes, this is a form of communication. How many of you lay in bed, in, lay in bed at night and just send those to your spouse? It's funny. It's what we do. Why do we have these differences? Why do we have these expectations that don't come into reality? Sometimes we have this difference because of just ignorance, right? We assume, you know, maybe, maybe we, 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 we have an experience or a way that we saw things play out, and we assume this is the way it's going to be when we, when, when we get to this next stage, and we have this ignorance. We don't understand how these two things uh, play. Sometimes this difference, this issue becomes because we have a, a lens or a filter for how we view life. We have this lens for how we view marriage and work and, and parenting and all these things, kind of based on maybe how we were raised, kind of based on what we've learned, what we've read. And we take this lens, this filter, that we understand it, and we project it onto somebody else. And that's kind of where we get this issue of expectation versus reality. And the problem is, is sometimes when we have these expectations on other people, sometimes that becomes a burden that is unbearable for them to keep. Uh, for example, I, I worked for uh, Unigospel Mission for, for, for a long time years ago. And uh, one of the things uh, I had a chance to do, I had to meet some people I probably wouldn't have met in different circles of life. And uh, so one of these men that I met was in their drug and alcohol uh, recovery program. Uh, a guy, you know, he came to the mission because he was homeless and because he was uh, addicted. And it was interesting, as I had the chance to get to know him, I'm like, let me hear your story. Tell me, tell me. And I was so surprised to hear his background because this man, he came from, uh, you know, he came from an educated family. He came from a wealthy family. And I'm like, dude, how do you go from there to, to, to the mission? 
And he said, well, here, here's what happened. He said, my parents, they had such high expectations. They set the bar so high for me and my siblings. And I was a firstborn, so I had the highest bar set for me. And he said, I, I live my childhood feeling like I can never keep up. And he said, it happened in high school where I got my report card and I had all A's except for one A minus. And he said, my parents flipped out. You would have thought I joined a gang. Like, and he said, it was that point. At that point, I realized I can't keep up. And rather than trying to keep up, I gave up. I ran the other direction towards rebellion and drugs and, and alcohol. How many of us have experienced that where somebody's expectations on us just becomes a burden, a weight? Man, I can't keep up with this. I can't fulfill these expectations. They're not helpful. They're unbearable. Now, obviously, we're at church. Can we talk about the expectations that we have on people at church? I mean, it's easier to look at the expectations we have in marriage or parenting, but what about the expectations we have for people that come into the church? Some of these things like, well, if you go to church, you should dress a certain way. If you go to church, uh, your, your talk, your language should be a certain way. If you go to church, you know, maybe it's you vote this way. You don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go with girls who do. Like you have these expectations that we put on people. If you go to church, this is what it is. Now, most of those things are not necessarily bad things. I mean, those convictions, they can be helpful for us in pursuing a, a, a walk with God. But are those things foundational to Christianity? When someone is searching after God, do those expectations that we carry, do they help someone find God? Or do they become an unbearable expectation that they can't keep up with? majority of this year, we've been studying the book of Acts, uh, looking at how the early church wasn't just an institution. The early church wasn't just a place where you came for religious services, and you said some prayers, and you heard some mediocre preaching, and a really funny joke. But the early church was a movement that, that changed and impacted everything around it. People, and families, and lives, and neighborhoods, and schools, and businesses it impacted everything around it. And our desire in studying the book of Acts is, is how do we as a church, restoration, how do we not just be an institution? How can we become a movement that impacts and touches everything around us here in Yakima? And as we look in this book, I, you know, one of the things I, I, sometimes people ask is they're like, man, the Bible, is the Bible even relevant I mean, the Bible was written over 2,000 years ago, and you know, it's a Bible. Is it even relevant to us today? Well, of course, I'm a pastor. I'm going to say, yes, it is. Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, which means that we have specifics that change in our, 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 our age and our culture, but we deal with the same struggles, the same problems, the same questions. In fact, our text today in Acts chapter 15, they're dealing with a question that we still deal with today. The question they're dealing with, what do you have to do to become a Christian? And what's funny, they were dealing with that same question 2,000 years ago, a question that we still, we still deal with today. There was a group in their church called the Judaizers who said, listen, if you're going to be a Christian, then you have to go and follow the Mosaic law. You've got to follow all the rules, and you have to get circumcised. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, 
uh, please email me this week, jacob at restorationyakima.com. I've said this again. Feel free to, I'll, I'll exp- give you a graph and explain it to you. Jacob at Restoration Yakima. <laughs> I would love for someone to actually do that. That would be really funny. See, the early church, they wrestled with this idea that, that do I have to be circumcised to become a Christian? Now, I'm thankful for Acts chapter 15 because that question was settled 2,000 years ago where the early church said, no, it is by grace alone and faith alone and Jesus alone that makes you a Christian. That's what we're going to hear today. That all those things that we talk about, the way you vote, being baptized, uh, cleaning up the way you dress and being a better person, does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is faith alone and Christ alone. But the other thing out of this passage we're going to learn that I think is so significant is we're going to see that this church said we're going to make a decision that we're not going to make it difficult for people to find God. And that's the heart that I want us to hear today. Is if we're, become, if we're going to become a movement, that we should not make it difficult for people to find God because we put unbearable expectations on them. So as we jump in, again, remember a little bit of context. Last week, chapter 14, we saw Paul and Barnabas. They'd been on this missionary journey. They'd preached to, to a ton of people. They went through uh, about a year and a half, traveled about 1,300 miles, and had a lot of a ton of people who came to place their faith in Jesus. You've got all these new people in the church. And here's the problem. Chapter 15, verse 1. It says, some men from Judea were teaching and said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you have all these new Christians that come into the church. They're all excited. Hey, I want to learn about God. And these Judaizers are saying, hey, that's great that you want to follow Jesus, but first you got to get circumcised. And you know what happened? I'm pretty sure this is in the Greek. You know what happened? Immediately all the men left the church. Like all of a sudden, no men wanted to convert to Christianity. If you don't get that, again, email me, jacob at restorationyakima.com. See, culturally, in that day and age, uh, a lot of the first century Christians, they came from a Jewish background, which means they were raised with the Old Testament law. They had this, this cultural and ethnic pride in the fact that they were Jewish. Much like we have an American pride in our nation, they had a pride in their heritage, And one of the most important aspects for Jews was circumcision. It was a sign that they belonged to to God's people. It was a sign of of their covenant, of their relationship with God. It's not a bad thing. These guys weren't evil. It's not like they had horns on. Oh, we don't like, no, no. They believed that Jesus lived a sinless life. They believed that Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross to pay for their sin and our sin and everybody's sin. They believe Jesus died and rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin, Satan, death, and hell. They believe that Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. Oh, they believe that. But they said, well, good Christians do this. Good Christians are circumcised. And so they added that, hey, if you're going to be a Christian, you also have to be circumcised. Now, again, we can uh, sit in our pews today and we can judge them. Oh, they're terrible. Why would they do that? But how many of us have kind of those same expectations? If you're going to be a Christian, that means you have to stop doing this. You have to stop looking at pornography. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to stop cussing. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to dress a certain way. You have to get rid of all the tattoos and the piercings and all. Like we have these expectations that we put on people coming to God and coming into church. 
to verse 2. Paul and Barnabas, they hear this, and they start this argument. They're like, no way. We just went and preached for a year and a half to all these people that if you place your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. You'll be a Christian. We just preached this. It's about grace alone, not circumcision. And it started such a big disagreement, such a big argument, that this church that they were at in Antioch, they said, we need to get some help. And so they reach out to the church in Jerusalem, which is kind of like the mother church. They send a delegation to Jerusalem. Hey, let's, let, let's get Jerusalem involved and they can help us solve this problem. So in Jerusalem, they gather the apostles of Jesus. They gather the elders and the leaders of the church. The whole church comes together. This is called the Jerusalem Council. Now, there's been a number of councils in the history of the church that help define what Christian uh, theology, what orthodoxy looks like. This was the first one. Dealing with, this question, dealing, with, <laughs> dealing with this question is what does it take for us to be a Christian? In verse 5, it says, Some Judaizers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they declared it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. This is their, this is their stand. Hey, if they're going to be a Christian, they've got to get circumcised. They've got to obey the customs of Moses. In verse 7, it says, After much debate which again, the Greek, I think it means after they were yelling a lot, there's a lot of disagreement, a lot of just, just back and forth. It says, Peter stood up among the brothers. He said, hold up, hold up everybody. If you know from my early days when God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God who knows human hearts, he bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And God made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by what? By circumcision? No. By, by, by being baptized? No. By becoming a part of the church? No, they cleansed their heart by faith. Peter's like, hey, hey, remember what happened a few years ago? Acts chapter 10, we can read the story. Where Peter is like, hey, I was just like you. I thought God only wanted to save the Jews. But then God told me to go to this Gentile, this guy who wasn't a Jew, named Cornelius. And he told me, I want you to preach the gospel to Cornelius. And I preached, and Cornelius and his whole family, and they believed in Jesus. And I was like, what the heck? And Peter's like, and then the weirdest thing happened because the Holy Spirit, God gave the Holy Spirit to these people, confirming that their faith was genuine. Like, like God was doing it. And he's saying, listen, God makes no difference. He makes no distinction between those who are Jewish and those who aren't. It is by faith that they were made right with God. So here's what he says in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke around the neck of these disciples that neither our fathers or us would bear? This yoke, if you could picture, you've got two animals, I don't know, two, two big old cows, two big old cattle, and you put this, this bar between them and you attach, uh, you, you attach a plow behind them. It would have been just a heavy weight. And he's saying, listen, listen, there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. There are tons of commands. You know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not lie. Listen, anybody in here, anybody in here never told a lie? Yeah, if your hand went up, you're a liar. You proved yourself as a liar. And that's what Peter's saying, like, like none of us can keep the law. So why would we put that yoke on somebody else that they have to do what we couldn't do ourselves? And he says in verse 11, we believe that we are saved through grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
just as they will be as well. He's saying every person, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're black or white or brown, whether you're rich or poor, no matter what your background is, every person, whether you're a Seahawks fan or one of those God-forbidden 49er fans, Raiders fans, every person comes to God in the same way, solely by the undeserving kindness and forgiveness of God. They don't earn it. They don't do anything to It's simply the grace of God and faith in him that makes us right with God. And Peter says this, and Peter sits down, and it says in verse 12, the whole assembly fell silent. They're like, oh, yeah, man. Ooh, this is hard for us to argue with. And then Paul and Barnabas stood up. Verse 12, they told them about the signs and wonders that happened on their missionary journey. Again, there's more testimony. Guys, here's all the people that we saw come and place their faith in Jesus. It was by faith alone we saw God do these miracles and signs and wonders and the churches were growing and we planted churches in Galatia and all over these places. And finally, verse 13, this guy named James stands up. James was the, the half-brother of Jesus. Again, I, I love the story of James. Uh, James did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was while Jesus was alive. I mean, of course, if you have a brother and your brother's like, I'm the son of God, you're like, you're an idiot. Like, I grew up with you. But then Jesus dies and raises from the grave, and James is like, whoa, he was right. He is who he said he is. And now James is now the the, the lead pastor at the church in Jerusalem. And he stands up. He says, verse 13, he says, listen to me. He said, Simeon, which is Peter's Hebrew name. He said, he related how God visited the Gentiles to take for them a people for his name. Verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophet agree. These next couple of verses, James quotes from Amos chapter 11 about a prophecy that God is going to establish a new kingdom. That he's going to restore the house of David, which includes the Jews as well as the Gentiles who are called by his name. James takes the word of God to confirm what Paul and Barnabas and Peter had experienced. That we are saved by faith alone, not by circumcision not being being a good person, not by any other thing. We are saved by faith alone. He says in verse 19, therefore, here's my judgment. Based of all that we've heard, the testimony and reading the scripture, here's my judgment. You Jewish Christians, you should not trouble. You should not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to God. I'll be honest, I wish we could take that verse and ascribe that on the doors of each of our uh, doors coming into this building. Do not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. He's saying, let's not make it difficult for people who are seeking after God by placing our Christian expectations on them. Oh, if you're going to come to God, circumcision. You're going to come to God, baptism. You're going to come to God, clean up your life. He's saying, let's not make it difficult. Let's not add these, these expectations on them. Let's let them just come and experience the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus by by faith. We're made right by God. We're, we become a Christian simply by believing in what Jesus has done in our place. Don't make it difficult by adding circumcision, baptism, by joining a church. Now, again, we talk about relevancy. 
We're like, we're at church. Of course we believe it's by faith. You know, Barna did some research in 2020. Barna Research, 2020. <laughs> Again, this just blows my mind. 50%, 50% of professing Christians say that a, a person is saved by their good works or by being a good person. Half of Christians believe we're saved by being a good person. And this is James. This is a, the whole church coming together to say, no, 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 no. Let's not make it difficult for those turning to God. It is the grace and the forgiveness and the power of God is found simply through faith in what Jesus has done in our place, not what we can do. Let's get this clear. Let's not make it difficult for people searching after God. Then he has a different word. He says, this is for you Jew Jewish, Gent Jewish Christians. Hey, don't make it difficult. And then he's going to say this in verse 20. But you should write to them, this is the Gentile believers, that they should abstain from a few, uh, from things uh, polluted, from idols, from sexual immorality, from what is strangled and from blood. And I'm like, wait a second, what? Right? He just said, let's not make it difficult for those people by placing these unrealistic expectations. And now what is he saying? Here's some expectations for you. Don't do these things. It almost is like, is it contradictory? It's not. Let me explain the context here. In the early church, one of the essential things that they did as a church, like we come together and we do worship, and we have small groups, and we do Martin Luther King ministry. We have these things that we do. One of their essential elements was eating together. And so as they gather these Christians, you've got these Gentile Christians and these Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians, they have these dietary laws. It would have been offensive for them to eat meat that was polluted by idols, that was strangled, that was from the blood. And so James is saying, listen, for the unity of the church, for the unity of the church, we should be gracious towards one another. He's saying there's nothing wrong with, with eating a medium rare steak. I mean, that's, a, that's the best way to eat a steak, right? But out of love and respect for your fellow Christian, practice some self-control. Abstain from these things so you don't cause a stumbling block for them. You're like, well, what about sexual immorality? That has nothing to do with, with animals being sacrificed or anything else. Well, again, what we know, we learned this a few weeks ago in the city of Antioch. Man, it was notorious for sexual immorality. And that obviously impacted the attitudes in the church. Again, we talk about relevancy. Man, Antioch is, is notorious for the sexual immorality. What about our culture today? Sexual immorality is everywhere around us, celebrated. James is not trying to be a prude here. Just saying, listen, God still wants us to be moral people. So we should abstain from these things. Paul says, here's my conclusion. Number one, don't make it difficult for people turning to God. And number two, don't cause a reason for your brother to stumble. Practice some self-control. Value the unity of the church. We have these things that are lesser things. Let, let, let's be willing to to set those things aside for the sake of one another. The apostles, the elders, the church, they hear what James says, and they're like, all right, we're in agreement. Let's do this. And so it says they chose some men, Paul and Barnabas and, and Judas uh, and Silas, and they prepare a letter to send to Antioch. And this letter is going to have James's conclusion, as well confirming that salvation is by grace alone, as, as well as telling people we ought to show honor to one another by abstaining from a few things. It says in verse 30, 
they were sent off. They went down to Antioch. And they gathered the congregation and they delivered the letter. And when the letter was read, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And guess what? All the men came back to the church. Amazing. I don't know how that happens. All the men are back. <laughs> and here's a summary of this message. Again, like, like what, what, what are we trying to learn here? What does this lesson teach us? What does this passage teach us? I, I want to be very clear in this. Because this is, again, this is a question they were dealing with 2000. Our context looks different, but we still deal with that same question. What is it? We still deal with that same question. What does it take for us to become a Christian? Our salvation is by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. Like, like this is significant. I want to be as clear as I can be. We are saved by grace alone. And why this is so significant for us is because grace, grace is not our human nature. Our human nature is built on accomplishments, is built on works. Our human nature, even though we might understand, hey, faith is by grace, I get this Jesus thing, but we revert back. It's kind of like you ever driven a car that's out of alignment? Like, like you drive a car and you, you get it right and you grab your knee on it and it steers this way. It's a car's out of, it's like, that's the way our lives work. Like, we understand it's about grace, but we always are going to align back to, to works, to, to doing certain things, to helping God out with our salvation. Nothing, hear this, nothing is more amazing and comforting and freeing than the knowledge that salvation is by grace alone and faith alone in Christ and not of our works, not of what we do. In fact, I want to just invite you. Now, what would it look like for you to, to surrender? Surrender your works. Surrender trying to be good enough to be worthy of God's love. And just by faith, believe what Jesus has done for you. Surrender your shame and your guilt. Many of us live our lives with that shame and guilt. Man, I've done that thing, and it's so terrible, and it haunts me to this day. Man, you can surrender that to Jesus because guess what? It's by faith alone. And when you place your faith in him and what he's done for you, guess what? He forgets that. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. All we have to do is believe in what he's done for us and receive him. And he gives us the right to become the children of God. Yeah, I want to be clear. Salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, I said those two backwards, grace comes first, and then faith, and then Christ. But here's where we go for application. I want to come back to this idea of verse 19, where he says, let's not make it hard for people to turn to God. Because I'll be honest, when I was reading this passage, I hear a couple of weeks ago, like this verse was like, you ever have a verse where it's just like the lights are blinking? And it's jumping off the page, and it's like, bingo, 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 bingo. And that was verse 19 for me, where James literally tells the church, hey, church, let's not make it difficult for people who are searching after God. Because here's what happens. You know why people come to church? People come to church because they're looking for something. They're looking for hope. They're looking for, for healing. They're looking for answers. They're looking for forgiveness. They're looking for, for community. They're looking for peace. 
And it's a weight for me to think that people would come into the church looking for those things, and instead of finding peace, they find expectations. It's a burden deep inside me that people looking for answers would come here and not hear about the grace that's found in Jesus and the hope and the forgiveness and the freedom, but instead would find you need to go do this and that and all these different things. The book of Acts, they made it hard on these people seeking after God by saying, hey, you gotta get circumcised. How do we make it hard for people who are seeking after God? And I tell you, uh, there's a pastor named Andy Stanley, and he, speaking on this verse, he talks about a couple of drifts that happen in the church of how we make it hard for people who are seeking after God. Two of them I want to point out, and then we'll be done. First way we make it hard for people is sometimes as a church, we drift from having a passion for outsiders to having a desire to pacify insiders. There's this drift in the church from being passionate for outsiders to, to pacifying insiders, right? Uh, let me ask you this. Do you know why we start churches? Why do we plant churches? Why was restoration planted? We were planted because we wanted new people to meet Jesus. We wanted to reach new people. We wanted people to come and learn about the, the grace and the hope and the forgiveness and the peace that's found in, in, in Jesus. That's why you start churches. But you know what happens? As a church gets established, guess what? All of a sudden, the church has some, some needs, right? And pretty soon, instead of focusing on meeting people, what does the church do? We focus on meeting our own needs. We focus on ourselves. We focus on those things. Now, I'll tell you, I've been in uh, Christian leadership for 18 years. Do you know, do you know who complains to the pastor? People who complain are not the people who are seeking after God. You know who complains? Church people. Oh, you know, you didn't do this, and, you know, we don't do that, and, you know, we, we need to do this, and you don't have this ministry, and all these different things. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying. You know what happens? It's churches that start out passionate on reaching people for Jesus. Pretty soon, it's almost like this drift happens. The car's out of alignment, and we start focusing on meeting the needs of the people. That's why churches have mission statements. The mission of the church, Jesus said very clearly in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. He said, listen, church, your job is to go and make disciples of all nations. This is your job. He says in Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So churches understand like our mission, the reason we exist is to introduce people to Jesus. That's why we, our mission statement is to know Christ and make Christ known. That's why we are here. But why is it that churches oftentimes have a hard time focusing on the outside and begin to focus on the inside? Church people come in and say, man, this church, you're not meeting my needs. You're not meeting my needs. This doesn't mean that church doesn't meet needs of, of our members. We do. But why does the church exist? Does it exist for you? Or does it exist for us to reach people in the name of Jesus? That the root of our heart of why we exist as a church has got to be on outsiders. It's got to be us saying, how do we get into the community? This is why we're trying to partner with Roosevelt. 
We can love on some families. And if the opportunity comes, we can tell them about the hope that's found in Jesus and have their life transformed. That's why we're doing it. This is why when I'm preaching, like one of the things I'm, I'm passionate about is I'm like, I don't want to use a bunch of theological terms. You know, uh, uh, I want it to be easy for people to grasp and under, understand. So that way, somebody on the outside comes in and they're like, okay, I can understand what he's saying. He's not using these insider languages that I don't understand. I mean, I think about, think about our Christian traditions. We love our traditions. We love the way the church has always been done. But sometimes if we're gonna reach new people, we have to be willing to, to break from some of the, the, we don't break from the message. We break from the traditions. We break, I mean, I think about even this, these, these kids that came up and led us in worship. Like, man, no, the way you grow a church is you have your best worship team up here. The best people should be performing because, man, that looks really good and that feels really good. No, I'm not really looking at creating a concert. I'm looking at saying, how do we invest in the next generation so that way the message of the church, the gospel continues to go to more people. Think about the movie Jesus Revolution. I talked about this a few weeks ago. I love that scene in Jesus Revolution where you've got all the hippies that are coming to church you know, and, and they're, they're not singing hymns. They've got guitars and drums. And you've got these established people in the church, their suits and ties, and they're like, hey, why are you allowing those people into the church? Until some of those old fuddy-duddies, sorry, I call them fuddy-duddies, some of those older folks, they're like, hey, you know what? It's not about my tradition or my preference. And they go and they stand next to those hippies and start singing along with them. They embraced this new generation, and guess what? Thousands of people came to know Jesus. A generation was transformed because we're willing to set aside our tradition in order to reach new people for Jesus. I mean, I think about Restoration Church. Here we are 10 years old. I think about our launch team 10 years ago. Man, there's a number of folks. I'm not gonna mention by name because I'd forget somebody. But man, they had an established church, had ministries that met their needs, that, that made them feel important and valuable. And I love it because those people said, you know, I'm willing to set that aside to go to this new church with this goofy pastor who doesn't know what he's doing. I'm willing to follow him because we're gonna reach people for Jesus. Man, that's what I want to see us about. Again, not that we don't meet our needs. We do meet needs. We do have opportunities. But the root, the heart has got to be us being passionate for outsiders. Second drift that Andy Stanley says happens oftentimes in churches is we focus on, rather than focusing on internal transformation, we focus on external conformity. Again, the root of the gospel is that we would have this internal transformation, that God would change our heart, that the desires of our heart would actually be different. The issue is it's hard to quantify what it looks like to have a transformed heart, right? I mean, the fruit of the Spirit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. It's kind of hard to say, oh, yeah, I can see you've got all these check marks for patience, right? A little harder to see that. And so what happens is as a church, we drift away from this internal transformation to external conformity because it's so much easier for us to say there's a long list of things, and as long as you do the list, we know that you're a good Christian, right? And so we put that list on people. Hey, if you're going to be a good Christian... You're going to dress this way. You're going to vote this way. You're going to talk this way. You're going to watch only these certain things. 
And that determines how spiritual you are. What are those things in the church? The way we dress, the way we talk, how we view alcohol, the, kind of, the type of music we listen to, divorce, how we answer doubt. These are the expectations that we put on people. Because if you're a mature Christian, man, you're going to meet all these, all these things. And you know what happens? These aren't bad things, but you know what happens? It's pretty soon we become so focused on external conformity that we end up faking it. Man, I got this list of rules. My heart's not changing, but I got this list of rules. And if I'm going to be religious and I'm going to follow God, I'm going to be a good Christian, I got to check all the box. And so we show up to church and we fake it. We put on our Sunday best. We project this sanitized, perfect little life. We walk in families hand in hand with our big Bibles and a, and a smile on our face. And the greeter's like, how's it going? And you're like, it's great. When in reality, your life's a mess. You've got secrets. You've got shame. Hi, brother. God is good. God is so good. And you know what happens when we do that? People come into the church again, they're looking for hope, they're looking for peace, they're looking for forgiveness, and they look at us and they're like, man, I'm, I'm not like those people. Man, I got some junk in my life, but nobody else here does. They're all just perfect and happy. It becomes a, a wall. Man, I can't follow after that God because I'm not like those people. I've got some struggles, I've got some issues. I'm looking for hope and I'm looking for peace, but I can't be like those people. And our, the way that we carry ourselves becomes a hindrance. So why one of the things we say here at Restoration Church, we're not looking for perfection. We're not looking for perfect people. Because I tell you what, if we're looking for perfect people, then I gotta be the first one to resign. I'm not anywhere there. But rather we're looking for progress. We're looking for people to say, this is where I'm at. But as I start pursuing this relationship with Jesus, guess what? I'm going to put one foot forward and I'm going to become a little bit better. And I'm going to put another foot forward and become a little bit better. Another foot forward and a little bit better. Our mission here at Restoration Church, very simply to know Christ and to make Christ known. It is by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. Now listen, if we're going to become a movement, if we're going to become a movement, let's commit to not making it difficult for people to come and find God.